I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the social index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the podcast, I've got Dave Knox. He's an author, consultant, and VC recently wrote the book Predicting the Turn, the high-stakes game of business between startups and blue chips. On the podcast today, we talk about innovation and disruption. Innovation, if you will, and the innovation problem from big companies like big consumer packaged goods companies, say P&G or Campbell Soup as an example, and the widespread disruption opportunity by startups and how to bring those two things together through either partnerships or innovative ways for Big companies to learn from small companies and small companies to benefit from big company partnerships. I hope you enjoy this show with Dave Knox. Well, Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. We've got a lot to talk about, but uh, let's start with why you wrote Predicting the Return. Yeah. So writing Predicting the Turn was one of those bucket list items that I'd been hoping to do for a while and finally had a moment to be able to do it. And the reason for writing it was really this intersection that I saw between the worlds of big companies and how they were approaching this thing called digital and how startups and entrepreneurs were approaching it. And I had a unique perch to be able to watch these worlds because one, I was former big brand marketer myself with Procter & Gamble and some other companies. But I'm also the co-founder of The Brandry, which is a startup accelerator. 
And in that world, I was seeing all of these different approaches that were taking place between these two environments. And predicting the turn was wrote because of that. And this opportunity for companies of all sizes to look at different opportunities for innovation, disruption, and all those other buzzwords going on in the world. Got it. it. Tell me a little bit more about your background. I mean, you've got this interesting background of big consumer packaged goods, agency side, and VC as well. So can you walk us through that and maybe, you know, any pivotal moments along the way? Yeah. So my career started at Procter & Gamble, uh, kind of a traditional brand marketing guy. But the thing that kind of started the path that's been the common thread throughout this entire time was I joined P&G in 2003, you know, in the the post.com era. And it was in that that I was fortunate enough to be put on a brand that was mostly working with kind of youth marketing. And while a lot of the world didn't know what to do with digital at the time, youth sure did. And so I was able to jump in and really immerse myself in a lot of these emerging platforms that were occurring at that time. And, you know, this is back in the days of MySpace and AOLIM and every other thing that's uh, on the graveyard of digital these days. But spent a few years doing that. And ultimately, what that led to was in 2008, P&G decided to start what was now called the e-business team, but at the time was the corporate digital strategy team. And I was the brand marketer that was kind of selected to be part of that group. And it was a group that was tasked with training our 5,000 marketers across the globe on what digital marketing should be and could be and working with our 300 brands in this kind of internal consultancy. And what that led to was 2008 was a pretty exciting time to be doing that because it's you know the year after the first iPhone came out, the emergence of Twitter and Facebook and all of these massive companies that today really dominate the digital industry, they were in their infancy. And I had a chance, you know, sitting the perch of the world's largest marketer and advertiser to be working hand in hand with a lot of those companies. So did that for a few years. And then in 2010, I went and went on the entrepreneurial route. And I joined as the chief marketing officer for a small digital agency called Rockfish. And in that world, opened up our Cincinnati office. And we went from being a company of about 60 people to fast forward seven years later, we were a company of 300 people and had been bought by WPP. So it was a great journey working alongside you know companies like Ford Motor Company and Kimberly Clark and Unilever and a bunch of others. Hmm. Very cool, very cool. You know, as we think about predicting the turn, you talk a lot about disruption, a lot about innovation. I'm just curious, you know, as you think about this, is this a big business innovation problem, or are you trying to address a widespread disruption opportunity? Yeah, I actually think it's both. You know, the thing with big companies, it's one of the message when I ever. Whenever I talk about predicting the turn to these big companies, they were all started by entrepreneurs at one point. And most of them had not just a single good idea, but companies that throughout their history evolved along the way. And it's why they're sitting the perch they are today. You know, P&G started off making candles. They don't make candles anymore. They've evolved into a lot of different areas. You know, American Express basically started as, you know, the, the Pony Express back in the day. You know, they've evolved in a lot of ways. But somehow in the last 10 to 15 years, the Fortune 500 forgot their entrepreneurial and evolutionary roots. And they need to come back to that because they've done it. They know how to do it. It's just in this world of you know, short-sighted quarterly earnings and the pressures of Wall Street and the available information, they maybe haven't had the freedom to be able to do it. So I think on this one side, you've got that opportunity for big co's. 
but on the flip side, it's such amazing opportunity for innovation that somebody listening to this podcast, by the time we're done, they could have launched their own business on Amazon and had fulfillment done and shipping and marketing and everything that used to take you know two years to be able to do in a big co world. No, it's very true. It's very true. I was experimenting just the other day, just experimenting with you know how to set up an e-commerce site. And I think it took me all of about two hours to add an e-commerce site and then also pick products with a fulfillment partner. It was amazing how fast yeah. you can, you can, you can get, I mean, now I, now I have to figure out what's interesting enough to put on a coffee mug or a t-shirt, but like, it's amazing that you can set something up that fast. Exactly. And the fact that you can do it in complex categories as well. I mean, right. it's the ability to find private label manufacturers that they're not just producing that value brand. They're actually producing incredibly good things. Like you know, Dollar Shave Club never produced a single razor themselves. They were just sourcing from somebody that spent all the money to build that razor factory. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. Well, so on innovation, and we think about these big companies, why has it seemingly stopped or been starved out of the cultures of most CPG companies? I mean, I've, I've worked with a ton. You've probably worked with a ton. And it just seems like they've kind of lost their way on the innovation side. Yeah, it's not from lack of trying or lack of interest. Because right. there's definitely a lot of people trying to really change the ship within many of those big companies. But I think you've got a couple of contrasts. One is, I was sitting down with the COO of a, a very large CPG the other day, and they said, look, every single thing on innovation that you're talking about is something we know we have to do. But because of the way that Wall Street is operating today and these massive PE firms that can do buyouts, they go, we know that if we miss our next quarterly earning, we might be out of our seat because we have activist investors and we have these things that our predecessors, it's not that they didn't have to deal with, but a CEO used to be rewarded for the five-year vision of how they were going to grow the company. And today, they're being measured whether they hit a quarterly number or not. And that's a really dangerous kind of short-term thinking that I think is stifling innovation in a lot of different ways. So I think you have that as one factor. The second factor, and it's probably a more dangerous one, is what's happened with in corporate research, if you will. Mm-hmm. So if you were you know, one of the best technical minds, scientific minds in the 60s, 70s, etc., you want to go to Bell Labs and Xerox Park and these you know, innovation campuses. And the result of that was back in the 1970s, less than 1% of R&D spending in the US was from small and medium-sized businesses. If you fast forward to today, nearly 25% of R&D spending is by those same size companies. And it's because the best minds are shifting to betting on themselves, doing those entrepreneurial journeys, you know, funded by things like venture capital and other plays instead of going to the safety of a corporate innovation job. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's amazing. It's amazing how little, I guess, is being spent on research. You know, one of the things, I don't know if you've heard this same phrase, but I've heard it a number of times in the last few months, executives saying, how can I act small, in quotes? And I think what they mean is, how can I be more like a startup? So if you were to give advice, what would you give them advice on? Yeah, it's I've heard that saying countless times is I think any single person that plays in this world and this intersection between startups and big co's. You know, I think the first thing I'd say is they're looking at the wrong thing. By saying I want to act like a startup and behave this way, 
you know, the first is there's a lot of people monetizing that behavior and sharing that mantra and convincing them that's what they should do. But it's completely the wrong thing because just because you're big doesn't mean you can't move fast. You know, the example I always point to is if you look at Amazon Prime, and in particular Amazon Prime Now, their same day delivery service, they launched that in 111 days in New York City. Yeah, that's not a simple place to launch a logistic business. And they did it in 111 days. That shows, you know, that when they did that, they were still a $400 million business. So it's not like they were a small company at the time. So being big still means you can do this stuff. So that's, you know, the kind of the first thing. Where I think the problem is, is that the incentives aren't aligned in a lot of cases for the employees of these big companies to act with that nimbleness and that speed. Because, you know, a friend of mine said it the other day who uh, works for a certain big CPG, he said, you know, I'm going to be rewarded for the same thing if I grow the business 5% or if I grow it 100%. But I'm going to be harmed a lot more if I decline 20 or 30 or 50%. So when your upside is going to be rewarded the same, but your downside is going to be also punished the same, why would you take the higher risk opportunity? And that's what entrepreneurs are doing every single day. You know, a startup is a pretty high risk kind of bet that somebody's taking. And you can't act nimble and act like a startup if the reward structure is uh, not aligned in the same way. Got it. Got it. Yeah, no, incentives can, I mean, you get what you measure to some degree, right? Without doubt. Well, you know, in the book, you mentioned partnerships and many other ways for startups and big business to work together. I feel like I've heard of more failures than we have successes. But what, you know, in your opinion, what do you think makes it work? And what are the watchouts? Yeah, I think there, I'll start with the watchouts because it's what's not discussed often enough. Yeah. And, you know, I think the first watchout is making sure the incentives are aligned on both sides and success looks the same on both sides. And you know, the example I use with that is, you know, a lot of times when companies even invest into companies and into these startups, they, the big company is viewing that investment as a strategic advantage that they get. And the startup, on the other hand, is viewing it as you know a channel for a lot of opportunities and growth and other things of that nature. And you know, I had one certain big company that they got to a very nice exit about ten months after this big company to invest it. And in the startup's eyes, they viewed it as an amazing success. The big company had gotten almost a six x on their investment. You know, a pretty amazing financial return in less than a year. Right, but. The problem is that the big company didn't invest for that financial return because turning 10 million into 50 million, that actually didn't matter. You know, that was a blip on their overall earnings report. Any of their business units could get that return. They were doing it for the advantage of having this startup close where they could proprietarily, you know, sell it in and be able to say they had this access, et cetera. And that's a misalignment of incentives and what success looks like on both sides right off the bat. So I think that's hard conversation of what are we both trying to get out of this? And is this partnership going to be aligned in the right ways? Needs to be one of the first things that's discussed and kind of evaluated. So that's, I think, step number one. Then step number two is the culture discussion. And the culture discussion of 
how will they work together and what's going to be required for that? Mm-hmm. You know, what's going to be the speed of decision making? Who's going to need to be involved? All of those things need to be talked about right up front. And I don't want to say a prenup needs to be put in place, but it almost needs to have those type of discussions. Right. Because a lot of times, let's take in the big corporate world, you know, you'll have somebody that's leading that partnership. And if there's one thing that happens a lot in corporations, it's people move jobs. And I don't know how many times I've seen it where a startup says, you know, we had this great relationship going, and then the person who was our main contact and our champion got moved to a new role. And then the new person coming in has to learn the background and the heritage and you know what took place, why it took place. And they're spending their time educating a partner on why they've even been working together instead of moving the ball forward. Gotcha. Yeah. So those are two watchouts, I think, uh, that are really important to kind of have that discussion. Uh, and those then help lead to the successes. Because the success of making a good partnership happen those are pretty easy. I mean, we all know how to you know, do those things. But right. it's talking more about what could cause the failure that human beings don't want to talk about enough. <laughs> That's very true. That's very true. So, well, I have a question for you. If you were a startup founder, would you take a meeting with a big company today? And maybe more importantly, would you take two meetings? Yes, but <laughs> it comes with alignment from day one of what are you both trying to get out of it? So, you know, that's a really key thing to kind of look at who are you meeting with and are they the right level that goes into it? And by right level, I mean, not too senior and not too small across both sides. So a lot of times these big companies have these innovation managers. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Those are the exact wrong person to be meeting with because <laughs> they probably don't have the decision making and authority to really drive something across the board. Mm-hmm. So you, you don't want one of those people. But at the same token, you can't be meeting with the CEO or the CMO of this Fortune 500 because they've got a lot of other things to be done and they're never going to be your champion across the board. So you want to find that right kind of mid senior level person that can be incentivized to help your partnership work. But they also have the decision-making that they don't have to keep running it up the flagpole and have you do six different meetings to get to a yes. Yep. So if you can figure that out, then you can find a great place. Because a lot of these big companies, the startups can be you know a tremendous advantage to them. And at the flip side, revenue is the best source of venture capital in the world. So if you as a startup can get revenue... That's a great way to think about moving your business forward. 
Okay, good. What are the different models of engagement? If I'm a big company executive and I'm trying to evaluate my options, um, kind of to you know move into this space, what are my options? Yeah, so I think there's really kind of four different options that go in. The first is investment. And investment being not just financial investment for financial returns, but corporate venture capital where there's a strategic return on the investment as well from market intelligence, knowledge, et cetera. So that's one of them. But, you know, the acquisition M&A, which is always an obvious one, but I always push it's more about innovation driven acquisition where you can really move into a new direction as a result of making that acquisition, not just buying market share but buying total available market. Hmm. The third is partnership that we just talked about. And then the fourth is this kind of broad one that a lot of people will call build, but I call it disrupt the disruptor. It is that opportunity to look at how can you create your own efforts that will be going after this space. Hmm. And I'll go back to the Amazon Prime Now example. Amazon didn't invent same-day delivery. Companies called Delive and TaskRabbit and a bunch of others were doing it. But Amazon watched those industries for about two to three years, saw how they evolved, and then they launched their own effort into the space. And there's a real value of that, that creativity is great, but perfection can be even better. Okay. One example, and it's a friend of mine actually taking the uh, head of marketing job is ADP, the big corporate you know, payroll processor and all things services. They just launched, I don't know how long ago, but a, a unit called Lifeon which is stated purpose is to cannibalize their enterprise business, which is, I think, hugely progressive. I'm interested to watch it unfold. And, and you know, having a friend now inside the company, I have kind of an insider's view, hopefully, <laughs> to see how that works out. So it can be done for those that are thinking about it. Without doubt. No, it's, and it's what you have to do. You know, one of the companies I cover in predicting the turn is EW Scripps which is you know, one of the oldest media companies in the United States. I mean, yeah. script spelling, B, all of that. And one of their gentlemen who led digital, he said, you know, the most difficult part of my job as leading our turn into the digital future is that every day I have to walk into the office and walk by the desks of salespeople and others that my job is actually to almost put them out of a job. And that's a really tough thing to do and see every day. But we won't exist as a company in 10 years if we can't do that. Yeah, no, it's very progressive thinking, very progressive thinking. One last question before we kind of switch gears a little bit, you know, are there any questions an executive can begin to ask themselves or maybe it's not questions, it's tips they can offer to think about getting started on this path to figuring this out and where I should start, you know, which of these options I should consider myself? Yeah, I think one of the first things I'd encourage really any company to do is think about relationships. And yeah, that sounds probably a little bit odd to talk about, but the world of innovation and venture capital and startups, it's actually a pretty small knit community. Because if you look at venture capital, it's not an industry that's measured by hundreds of thousands of people in it, if not even tens of thousands. You know, there's literally thousands of people that have that title that are investing in startups and engaging. And you can pretty quickly find those people that are the experts in the spaces where your company might be playing. And so starting with that relationship is a super important thing because the rules of the the sandbox and the playground in this game of uh, high-stakes business 
is really different than the ones of corporate competition that we've been engaging in in the past. And oftentimes in this world, you'll be going from somebody that's an ally to somebody that's maybe an enemy and then a partner of yours, all within the course of a pretty short order. And so those relationships are an important place to start. And I think a lot of big companies, they go in, I think at times maybe a little bit guns blazing of, we're a big company, we've got this amazing logos, anybody should want to work with us, we've got this super deep pocketbook. But instead, they need to go in a little bit more with humility and go in to seek to learn, to build the relationships, to find out how they can pay it forward and build some of that karma piggy bank before they start going into those efforts because those relationships are going to be invaluable. And it's a world where your advantage is often going to be not first mover advantage or biggest pocketbook, but the first one to be able to see an opportunity. And those innovators, those community leaders, those venture capitalists, they're also often going to be the ones that see the opportunities first. And you want you to be the person they call to talk about it. Right, right. Very smart. I mean, I think to your point, the the humility aspect of it and realizing that, you know, it's a small universe to begin with. And there's a lot of well-funded players in the market. And it, to your point, it, it's not just the logo and the money that you bring, but it's making sure that people are comfortable doing business with you. Yeah, exactly. And it's remembering that some of these influencers they're not just influencing a single company, but they're right. influencing multiple ones. Right. If a venture capitalist, let's say at you know first round capital, has a bad experience of one of their portfolio companies working with your company because you wanted you know 150 day payment terms, or it took you 20 meetings to get to a decision, or pick any other bad behavior, well, you're not just soiling that relationship with a single startup. You're soiling it with almost every startup that that VC touches going forward. And that multiplier effect can be harmful without a company even realizing that it happened to them. This is great examples and good advice. Good advice. Well, let's switch gears. You know, one of the things we like to do in the show is get to know the person we're talking to or listening to. And in that effort, love asking this question, which is, you know, is there an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today? Yeah, I think uh, you know we all have those moments that over life we don't realize as they were happening. But when you look back, you realize how much of a trajectory it sent you on without even intending it for it to be. And so for me, one of those was back when I was in college, I actually thought I was going to go into the music industry. <laughs> and it wasn't because I had any musical talent whatsoever, but I had a deep appreciation and love of that industry. And so at the time, you know, I was an entrepreneurship major at Miami University in Ohio, and I was participating in one of our internship programs that allowed me to go work for a company called Aware Records that was in Chicago. And Aware was this amazing, you know, eight-person company that was started by a guy named Greg Ladderman. And that summer, you know, we signed John Mayer. We were working with Train and Five for Fighting and Guster and all these awesome bands. Wow. And at the end of the summer, Greg sat me down and he said, "Look, Dave, you know, we'd obviously love if you came back and worked for us." But it's the music industry, which means every single person on the street wants to work in this industry. And I can pay them pretty much pennies for even a Harvard graduate because they want to work in the music industry. Right. So he goes, so from what I see of what you want to do, you want to go into marketing. That's what you love. And you know, this is 2001. So it's e-commerce just rising up and digital and all that. 
He said, go down to Procter & Gamble. They've been trying to recruit you. You've got an opportunity to work for them. Go get the best training that you can. Because if you come to work for me at 22, you're going to be executing. Right. And you'll be learning on the job, but you're not going to be trained. Hmm. But if you go to a place like P&G, you can continue your training. And if you want to come back into the music industry in five years or 10 years, you can come in not as an entry level, but as a senior leader. And that is what set me on the path. And if it wasn't for P&G, it would have never led to this relationships in venture capital and digital, which would have never led to Rockfish and you know everything that came out. So it's amazing that one piece of advice that I'm not even sure if Greg would even remember giving <laughs> sent me off an entirely different path than I was intending. That's a great, great, great piece of advice and great story. What fuels you? What drives you? What keeps you going? You know, for me, the drive is frankly as a father. So I'm a father of a uh, six-year-old twins at home and, you know, amazing wife and everything else. And for me, it was the drive that started six years ago when those kids were born. You know, I always had a drive to accomplish, but it's a different sort of drive that comes in. But what also comes in with it that's really interesting is the forced balance. <laughs> that, you know, at one point it was, oh, I've got go give a speech or go see a client and, oh, it's a cool city, so I'll go hang out for an extra day or so. Now it's, I'm going to get on that 6 a.m. flight, get out there, do my business, and get back on a 10 p.m. flight if I have to. Right. So that drive is a really interesting thing that's a, a little bit different, that's a lot of fun. And then the related part to that is I have a tendency to love challengers and mm. you know, do the thing that's maybe a little bit more difficult way to do it. And so that's why you know, I've decided to keep my career here in Cincinnati instead of going off to a San Francisco or New York where you might walk out your door and the opportunities are there. I love to uh, kind of create the opportunities a little bit more and be that challenger brand, if you will. Like that. Well, most marketers tend to be students of the business. And so I'd love to know if there's brands or companies or even causes that you follow or you think others should be taking notice of. Yeah. You know, one of the things I love are those established companies that are getting back to their roots and doing things a little bit different, even though they might not be gaining credit for it at the moment. So one of those is, for instance, let's take Campbell's Soup. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Campbell's is struggling in a lot of different ways that people aren't buying cans of tomato soup like they once did. But their leadership is really taking some different bets at the moment. And so one of my favorite ones was they bought a company called Plum Organics. Mm -hmm. And the CEO of that business was a guy named Neil Grimmer. And the thing is, when you buy an entrepreneur, they're not generally going to want to stay at your company for 15 years. That's not why they were entrepreneurs to begin with. And so when Neil was getting to the end of his earnout, he'd become really close with the CEO of Campbell's. And they'd been sharing a journey of uh, healthier eating. Because Neil tells the story that he gained something like 70 pounds in his final two years as the founder of Plum because his heart was in the business and he wasn't taking care of himself. So he was going on this discovery journey and the CEO of Campbell's was doing the same. And so when Neil went to her and said, you know, I'm going to be leaving and my next startup is going to be around this personal journey that I'm on, instead of saying, okay, what can we do to keep you? What's it going to take? she actually got the company to write the entire check to fund that startup. Wow. And realizing that I'm going to let an entrepreneur go be an entrepreneur, and I'm going to have a first, you know, a seat at the table to see that journey unfold, which is a, 
a pretty smart way to approach things. So I love them as an example. You know, the other one I use a lot and it's it's getting a little a stale at the moment because they're actually not turning the corner like I hope they would a little bit. Right. But that's Under Armour. Yep. And you know, the all the companies that they've bought in the fitness tracking space. I think they really are going down this belief of while the sporting industry has been about endorsements and celebrities in the past, the future of it's going to be about us and everything else. So that's, I think, going to be a really key thing across the board. Mm -hmm. And we'll see where that goes and where it evolves. I like that. Well, one last question for you. What do you see the future of marketing look like? I think the the future of marketing is going to be much more about um, total customer experience. And what I mean by that is marketing historically has been very isolated. You know, we had our advertising spend and these things of marketing that we spent money on for the most part. If you look going forward, I think the job of a marketer is going to really expand. And the the best marketers are going to be ones that embrace that. The ones that aren't going to be in jobs very long are going to be the ones that fight against it. And thinking about a marketing touch point is going to be everything from customer service to the look of your lobby to how somebody answers the phone. All of those are reflections of the brands. And some of the most exciting companies today, they got that way because of a, a founder that without having the title was also the CMO. You know, They set the culture, they set the direction of the company, they set where everything went. And a marketer needs to think that same way. And think about all of those different touch points are opportunities for them to grow their brand and their business, not just to do fancy ad campaigns. Right, right. Well, Dave, it's been fascinating. And I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. And thank you for producing these great shows. Thank you. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with writing and editing by Kevin Greeley. Social media support by Megan Woods. Art and graphic design by Sarah Dell. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners. and You can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 